0: way tonight to the book of Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes chapter 12, and we are in verse 9, we're going to come down through verse 14, so we are uh, in a week of ending series and expositions that we've been in, right? We ended Jonah on Sunday, and tonight we are ending Ecclesiastes, so we've come through the entirety of the book, chapter 1, verse 1, all the way to now, chapter 12, verse 14, and uh, what a journey it's been. A lot of things we've gleaned from it, and uh, I have enjoyed the study. I pray that it has been a blessing to you and a benefit to you. Um, It certainly has given me a fresh perspective for life under the sun and taught me many things uh, that I probably didn't think about beforehand. And so let's look at uh, Ecclesiastes 12, verse 9 through 14. The title of the message is simply, The Conclusion for Life Under the Sun. The Conclusion for Life Under the Sun. Notice in verse 9, he says, Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads, and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. My son, beware of anything beyond these, of making many books, there is no end. And much study is a weariness of the flesh. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. You know, we kind of recap just a little bit to set the stage for this conclusion. But we think about Ecclesiastes and we've observed much about life under the sun. And uh, we see seen an extensive look, really, at life under the sun from Solomon. And what has the central observation been throughout the book? What is the repeated phrase that he has said? It is vanity, vanity of vanities, and vexation of spirit. Uh, and you'll notice, just to tie in to this conclusion, verse number eight. We saw this a little bit last week, but it ties into seeing the end of the book. He says, "Vanity of vanities," says the preacher. All is vanity. You remember how Solomon began the book in chapter 1 of verse 2, after introducing himself as the preacher, the son of David, the king of Israel, he says, vanity of vanity, says the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. So what Solomon has done here with this book is he's used a literary technique known as an inclusio, which is, uh, it is when a writer begins and ends his message saying the same thing. It's like bookends to the big message and everything in between. Vanity at the beginning and vanity at the end. It's like a bracket for the whole message that he has communicated. Now, do we remember what vanity means? Vanity is the Hebrew word hevel, and it refers to a warm breath or vapor. Now, we often think of vanity as meaning something that's pointless or useless or meaningless. Uh, And while it does communicate those things in certain contexts, the more literal understanding is that it is speaking of something that is fleeting, something that is elusive, something like a breath, like a vapor. It's here and then it's gone, right? Solomon uses that word 38 times in the book, so you see the importance of it. He's pointed out many specific aspects of life that are vanities. They're just breaths or maybe have uh, challenges to them. He has pointed out that pleasure is vanity, work is vanity, human wisdom, words, money, Desire, laughter, injustice, difficulties in life, childhood, youth, and various things. Vanity of vanities. All these things are fleeting and momentary and only a temporal part of life under the sun. But in spite of all those things that you might say, man, this is, a, this is just a really negative, negative, negative. He also says to enjoy and rejoice in life. Enjoy the blessings of God. Enjoy every bite of food that you eat. Enjoy the moments with your family and the fellowship with friends and, say, the church today. Enjoy work and do good at it, right? Uh, Enjoy prosperity and and, and the things that God has blessed you with in life. So there's there's things that he points out that we ought to enjoy in life. And ultimately, in light of all that we've seen, Solomon is bringing us to the absolute conclusion that everything truly is vanity in life without God, without God. Without God, what really matters since everything passes away? Everything we hold dear passes away. And if we miss God at the center of it, we miss the purpose for which he's given us, those very things. And so, let's look at what Solomon brings to our attention and what this is called an epilogue, this closing statement, an epilogue. Notice with me number one in our notes, the summary of the preacher's life. Here's just a A little bit of a summary that he gives about what he did and what he instructs. So notice Solomon's description of his life. Solomon's description of his life. In verse 9 he says, Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. Now you'll notice he describes himself as the man in which he really is. He is a wise man. I don't think this is a haughty thing for him to say this. He generally just acknowledges that God has endowed him with wisdom. This was a gift of God. We established that that God had given him this gift of being wise in a very unique way that not many people have had. Most people know him as the wisest man to have lived outside of Jesus Christ, of course. Uh, But even the secular world around us recognizes wisdom associated with Solomon, right? And so... Uh, what we find here is that his wisdom, it wasn't just an earthly form of wisdom. He had wisdom that was from above, that could understand things of the earth and the, from the lens of God's point of view. So with that wisdom, Solomon, he didn't only want to state was, what was intellectually and observationally true. He wanted his people to know truth in a personal and practical way. So you, you read Ecclesiastes, it's not like it's just a, a statement of facts. There's application that's been geared in all of this. And that's really what this is all about. Because truth, the aim of truth is to affect the heart. It's not just good enough just to know what truth is. Truth is to affect us. It's it's the same thing with the gospel. There there can be someone who knows the ins and outs of the the doctrine of the gospel but not be affected in their heart by it. Not know Jesus personally. And, And so the whole point of knowledge is that it, applies that it changes our heart and so you notice that he says the preacher also taught the people knowledge the knowledge has to be understood as not just accumulation of facts it's related to discipline and righteousness and skill the application that comes from that knowledge and that is really the intent of teaching at its core the desire for 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 from the teacher is for the student to know and to take to heart what is being taught That is the heart of anyone who teaches and tries to instruct, whether you're a parent teaching your children or a pastor teaching the church or a Sunday school teacher, uh, whatever avenue it may be, the point of teaching is that you don't just get facts, but you get something that changes you, that you see the, the, the essential importance of the truth that's being taught. So this is why Solomon gave us this great book. It's for his people to see the picture of life under the sun that this is a vanity without our creator. Life under the sun is vanity without him, without our great God who gave us life and for which we exist. Now, you can see somewhat of a summary of the teacher's aim in Proverbs 1, 1 through 7. And I'll just read this to us. If you want to look there with me, you can. But this kind of just shows you the, the heart aim of Proverbs and wisdom and knowledge. He says, The Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel, to know wisdom, and instruction to understand words of insight, to receive instruction in wise dealings and righteousness, justice and equity, to give prudence to the simple knowledge and discretion to the youth. But the wise hear and increase in learning to the one who understands, obtain guidance to understand a proverb and a saying the words of the wise and their riddles. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. He opens the book of Proverbs in a similar fashion. He wants to to know, to understand. So he continues in verse 9, and notice what he says. He says, weighing and studying and arranging many Proverbs with great care. What does he mean by this? This is what Solomon's doing, and most attribute the bulk of Proverbs to Solomon, as they indeed were his, written by him, spoken by him. So what does he mean here? He's expressing his desire in his teaching to be both clear and accurate and assembled in the right way. (laughs) He he uses several verbs here that express that effort. The first one, weighed, points to the careful evaluation of truth, indicating his honesty, his caution, and balance. The second word here, uh, to to thoroughness, that speaks of thoroughness and diligence. The third word he uses in this verse, is arranged, points to the skillful orderliness of his presentation and reminds us really that there's an artistic element to his work in which he's arranging truth, how he is saying truth, how he is communicating truth. And what was his primary method of teaching? We find it was in many proverbs. That's what he says here, many proverbs. So we know that this is wisdom literature. It's very unique in its uh, teaching style. And we pointed that out at the very beginning in our series, in the opening introduction of the book, that wisdom literature deals with the way the world works. It can deal with big philosophical issues, but also can deal with the smaller things that are addressed in common sense. And so Solomon here, he's given us this. He's teaching this great wisdom that he knows and has seen by observation of life under the sun. And I think you'll note how important it is to him You'll notice that he does this with three words here. He says, with great care, with great care. And certainly to speak the way Solomon has spoken requires great care and wisdom in what he has communicated to us. But he continues this thought. You come on down to verse 10 and look at what he says. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. You think about words of delight. Delight. You know, when you delight in something, you enjoy it, right? All of us had some kind of a dessert tonight that we would say, Boy, we delighted in that, right? Tasted good. You see, I get an amen right there. That's worth amen in. It's a truth. But you think about what you delight in. The truth is delightful. Truth is delightful, especially for the one who knows God, right? It is satisfying, it is uplifting. This is what God's truth is, especially for us who know him. Jeremiah said this regarding the word of God in Jeremiah fifteen sixteen, he says, your words were found and I ate them, and your words became to me a joy and a delight of my heart, for I am called by your name, O Lord, God of hosts. Have you ever been just reading your Bible and the truth that just satisfies and sinks deep within your heart and your soul, and you rejoice in the truth that you've read or maybe that you've heard preached or you've heard taught uh, from somebody you see this is what the word of God does for us this is the description of the blessed man in Psalm 1 his delight is in the law of the Lord and on his law he meditates day and night truth is a delightful thing but you'll notice also that though Solomon sought to find words of delight in communicating the truth he did not seek to be so delightful that he sugared the hard truth that is needed because truth, though it, is also, though it is delightful, it is also very piercing at times, isn't it? You'll notice specifically he uprightly gave the words of truth in delight. He uprightly did this. He, he, he was not so pleasing that he ceased to be upright in what he communicated. And, and truly, this is great application for the church today. Because to tamper with truth, to make it more palatable to the hearer, is a dangerous and destructive practice. Many churches in this current era dumb down the truth for the sake of the listener. May I say that that is a false approach and a dangerous approach to handling the Word of God. The whole point of the hard truths of Scripture is that they are hard. We need that, as you're going to see here in a moment. But here's what Paul says about those who do such a thing. Paul warns Timothy, preach the word. He tells him, commands him, preach the word in 2 Timothy 4, 2. Why does he tell him to preach the word? Stick with the word, only the word, because of this. For the time will come when people will not endure sound teaching. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. In other words, they long for teachers that at least in the name of Christ, they'll tell them whatever they want to hear though it may not be actual truth they need. See, though truth is not always tasteful, it rebukes the heart and informs us of the hard realities that are needed. And I don't know about you, but there's been some pretty hard sayings, even in the book of Ecclesiastes. We've come across some passages that are not easy to digest, but nevertheless, they are true. You see, see hard truths don't make them less true. They're still true. And this certainly is needed for us. We, we must be careful as, as we as the church, we are the, the pillar and ground of what? Truth, Paul says. This was Paul's conviction that must be our own. He said in 2 Corinthians 4.2, we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, but by open statement of the truth, we commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. So Solomon's life, you could say, it was a megaphone of truth, of God-given wisdom and observations what we see in Ecclesiastes, especially towards the end of his life. But notice with me, letter B, we see Solomon's instruction for life. We see the description of his life, that he was blessed with wisdom, he assembled Proverbs, and he sought to teach uprightly and in a delightful way. He, he assembled in a way that God blessed him to do that. But notice his instruction here or really admonition to us. In verse 11, beginning, he says, the words of the wise are like goads and like nails firmly fixed on the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. You look at the object illustrations he's using. What is a goad? What is a goad? A goad is a long pointed stick used for prodding and guiding oxen while plowing. Goads were not meant to injure the animal, but we're meant to inflict just enough pain to direct it on the right path and to keep it going forward, to keep it in line. Now, we can see the opposite effect of resisting the goads, resisting the truth. If an animal fights against the goads, what's he doing? He's only hurting himself. If an ox decides, you know what, I don't like being told what to do by this this farmer or master or whoever's riding him or, or directing him, and he starts kicking against the goat, he's only damaging himself, only hurting himself. Proverbs 29, 1, he who is often reproved yet stiffens his neck will suddenly be broken beyond healing. Resisting reproof only hurts yourself. You remember what Jesus said to Saul of Tarsus when he was persecuting the church? He used this very illustration. Paul recounting this the day when Jesus struck him off his high horse to the ground (laughs) there on the road to Damascus. In Acts 24, 26, 14, he said, When we had fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. How was Saul kicking against the goads? He was resisting and fighting the gospel. He was fighting against Jesus as the Messiah. He was fighting against the church as God's people. He needed to believe on the true Messiah, the Christ, who is Savior and Lord. So what does Solomon mean but the words of the wise are like goads? He means that these wise words of truth, they prick us in our heart, in our conscience, in our soul. They call us to repentance. They call us to move forward with right living before God. They call us to live with wisdom in light of God and his truth. And this is the aim and the operation of the whole of the word of God, is it not? Scripture has an intended goal in it, and it is to affect the heart of man. That is the whole point. The word of God is living. It is active. It is sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and of discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. I know we've all experienced that verse in person, haven't we? <laughs> I mean, you, you, whether it's at your salvation or through your Christian life, the Word of God cuts deep. It cuts deep in ways that you probably didn't think it could cut. Solomon doesn't want his listeners to resist the truth he's spoken, but rather, when prodded by the truth, to be moved in the right direction. That is ultimately the desire of God for us. That's the desire of uh, of him, is that we as his people, that when we are prodded with the word of God, that we would obey and be prodded in the right direction. We'd submit to his direction. This is why preaching is so central to worship in the church. You ever wonder why we don't sing for 40 minutes and preach for about 10? There's a reason for that. Preaching is central. Now, all of them are important. But the Word of God is central to the operation of the church. Without it, we have nothing. We must have it, okay? And so we regularly, all of us, the preacher included, we need to be prodded by the Word of God. We need to be prodded. And I can tell you right now, if you're sitting in a sermon of mine and you're getting prodded, I was prodded before you did. (laughs) Uh, I, I I was getting hit before you were. And so if, if you get uncomfortable, just know I was uncomfortable earlier in the week. Uh, that's how God's word works. He prods us with what's what it is we need in our heart that we need to repent of or be changed or be sanctified in. So he says that the words of the wise are like goads, but he also says they're like nails firmly fixed. What's that mean? What's, what do nails do? Well, they fasten objects together. Well-driven nails make something strong, don't they? that's what the word of truth does. It drives home to our heart the very truths that make us stronger. But notice he closes this verse by saying, I think this is a very important verse to recognize with Solomon. He closes this verse by saying they are given by one shepherd, by one shepherd. Now, often the king was viewed as a shepherd over Israel because he watched over the people and was to protect them with the army and whatnot. But you know that Solomon, he's not talking about himself here. He recognizes that this shepherd is none other than the Lord himself. As David said, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Psalm 23, 1. Scripture repeatedly asserts the Lord is the shepherd of his people. He's the shepherd who gives them all that they need. He provides their needs, but his great, the greatest need he's provided for his people is his word. More than even the food we eat. You remember what Job said? He said, I have esteemed the words of your mouth more than my necessary food. That's how he viewed the words of the living God. You see, God is the shepherd here. Jesus said this of himself in John 10 27 My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. We established at the beginning of this study that the book of Ecclesiastes is not just the observations and wisdom of Solomon. They are the divine words of the sovereign God who has given us this book for a reason to affect our Christian life. Notice with me verse 12 as he continues on here. Verse 12, he says, My son, beware of anything beyond these. Of making many books there is no end, and much study is a weariness of the flesh. He gives a warning here. might seem like an odd warning, but it's a warning. That warning, in in short, really, is that we must be aware of attempting to take in too much knowledge, especially that which is not of God. Notice he says, of making many books, there is no end. Isn't that true? You know how many books are published in a year? Well, there's no exact number, but experts estimate that there are approximately 2.2 million new books published globally every year. 2.2 million published globally every year. Now that's in the modern era with the printing and technology and, and now you can, you know, self publish books on Amazon and different sites. I mean, books just come out every day. Every day books are being published. You said, well, what about in Solomon's Day? Well books weren't as populated as much back then, a little slower, but nevertheless, they still had the publishing of books. One commentary commented this about that writing was well established as a hallmark of civilization from about 3500 B.C. onwards. Books were written first on clay tablets, later on papyrus or leather. There was all all kinds of books back then. Now, you just imagine for a moment. Imagine trying to read every book that just comes out. (laughs) Imagine trying to read every book that comes out. Now, I love getting new books. I have two great hobbies. Reading books and buying more books than I'll actually probably be able to read. (laughs) Those are two great hobbies to have, okay? Some of them I may not read all the way through. There may be a tool that I'll reference. There's something I can look up in them. Uh, Not all books I read-through books. But you think about the aspect of new books coming out. There's always new titles coming out just within the category that I love, which is theology. There's more than I could ever read or focus on. And so to attempt to read and obtain everything is impossible, and to try to do so is exhausting. It's beyond what you can really do. And that's why Solomon says here, much study is weariness of the flesh. Okay, even when studying for a long period of time just for sermon preparation as a pastor, I get to a point where i got to shut it off. (laughs) I can't do this that long. I read of some older men like Jonathan Edwards who would, He would study for 13 hours a day, 13 hours. Some men are more gifted than I am, but at some point, you can only take in so much. Your brain can only take in so much. And so Solomon really is warning against trying to take in too much. Now, some people can take in all the earthly knowledge in the world they're able to and still not know the most important truth that they need. Paul described people like this in 2 Timothy 3 7. People that are always learning and never able to arrive at the knowledge of the truth. A lot of people like that. And I want to clarify this that this does not mean don't read books. Some take this to mean, see, we just don't need to read books, just only read the Bible. Well, Paul was a reader of books and the Bible, writings of that day. 2 Timothy 4 13, he told Timothy, When you come, bring the cloak that I left at car- Carpus. At Troas, also the books, and above all the parchments. You know what the parchments were? The scriptures. But he also said, bring the books. Paul had other things that he read. See, reading books is good and necessary. To not read books is really a bad practice. You ought to read, even if it's audio books nowadays. <laughs> I, just, I just, I don't know. People try to push audiobooks to me, but I feel like I'm cheating when I do that. Um, there's nothing wrong with audiobooks. Maybe you do that while you're running or walking or driving down the road, but that's just a personal thing with me. I feel like I'm cheating the system if I don't pick up a book and read it, right? Uh, that's just how it goes. So if you like audiobooks, I don't have anything against you. Keep, keep, keep taking in what you can. But the point here is not to be overtaken by the pursuit of knowledge, for you can only take in so much. The most important knowledge we need is what? The truth of God. I love this quote by Spurgeon. You'll see it hanging in my office. Visit many good books, but live in the Bible. Visit many good books, but live in the Bible. So, the summary of the preacher's life here gives us insight to his words, what his works were, but also instruction for today and why we need the truth. But notice with me, number two, we'll close with this. We've touched on some of this already through the book, so I won't spend an extensive amount of time here. But notice the summary for everyone's life. And I want to notice two things. First thing I want you to see is man's responsibility. For life under the sun, his responsibility for life under the sun. To close this epilogue, Solomon gives his listeners the overarching application we need. With all that he's observed and described in life under the sun, what must be man's responsibility? Is there any meaningful responsibility at all, since Solomon says vanity of vanities? All is vanity. Absolutely there is. In fact, Solomon drives home the greater lesson here that since there is more to life than just this life under the sun, everything in life matters under the sun. He starts with this in verse 13. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments for this is the whole duty of man. What does he mean by end of the matter? It means the conclusion of everything he's just said. Now some translations render this Hebrew differently. Some will say the conclusion, when all has been heard. Others may say, let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. This is what he's culminating with. And with two words here, he starts this out, fear God. I mean, those two words, so deep, so wide in their application, fear God. What is it to fear God? It is to have a holy reverence and honor for him. You you recognize God for who he actually is. He's not just this idea of religion. He is the living God. He is true. He is, he, is, he is perfect in every way. Fearing God, he says. He's already mentioned this application through the book at various points. He's peppered it throughout. Chapter 3 and verse 14. Chapter 5 and verse 7. Chapter 7 and verse 18. Chapter 8 and verse 12. And now he concludes it right here. Fear God. You see, knowing who God is from his word, should we not fear him? Considering that he is almighty. He is holy. He is the all-powerful, all-knowing, all-loving. All, he is all, all-present one. He is the all-wise one. He is righteous. He is just. He is wrathful. He is merciful. He is, he, he is jealous. He alone is the God to fear because he alone is God. His nature necessitates that we fear Him, that everyone in the world fears Him. Psalm 33, 8, let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of Him. We must fear Him, Christian. The call is to everybody to fear Him. The world around us, what do they behave according to? They behave according to their fallen nature, which does not fear the Lord. You realize the call to fear him, while it applies to them, we are most accountable for that call. Because we know who this God is. We know this God. What should a true fear of the Lord do for us? It should cause us to love the Lord with our hearts, worship him with our hearts, and to obey him in our lives. And that ties into this second aspect, what he says here. The next aspect, he says, fear God and do what? keep his commandments. What does it mean to keep his commandments? It means that you hold his word with such reverence as the authority of the word of God that you love it and you obey it and you seek to live it out in your life. You seek to live out the word of God. You see, the fear of the Lord and obeying the word of the Lord, they go hand in hand. They go together. You really can't separate them as you really look at it. You look at this text in Deuteronomy. 10, verse 12 and 13, he says, and now Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? But to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord, which I am commanding you to do this day. You see how these go hand in hand. If you don't fear the Lord, you're not going to keep his If you actually do fear the Lord, that should be the natural outflow, is keeping his commandments, living according to his word. That's what we see. Now, there's many in our world who will say, oh, yes, I love God and I love Jesus. They want nothing to do with the scripture and nothing to do with the church. Those are liars. Those are liars. If you genuinely know Jesus and love Jesus, you cannot separate the two. You cannot separate the two. Jesus said in Luke 6 46, why do you call me Lord, Lord and not do what I say? If I am your Lord, why would you not do what I say if I truly am your Lord? Now, this doesn't mean you live a life of perfection or anything like that. I'm not saying that. I'm simply saying that fearing God and loving him and obeying him, they go hand in hand. They go hand in hand. And here's what we find in our world is that many view a life lived for the Lord as a waste of life. As if. Life were much better aside from God. The things you could do and enjoy. Those people need to read the book of Ecclesiastes, don't they? The book of Ecclesiastes turns that idea upside down. It points out that without God, all the rest is vanity. All the rest is vanity. The actual good life, the actual blessed life, the actual life of true enjoyment and satisfaction that the soul needs is found in a life lived unto God, unto Him. Psalm 128, 1, Blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who walk in His ways. Blessed is that person. Blessed. You just consider this, the summary of our life responsibility to our Creator. This is the whole duty of man. This is not the partial duty of man. It's the whole duty of man. And you know, we often have heard this phrase from the uh, Westminster Catechism. What is the chief end of man? How many of us know the answer to that question? What is the chief end of man? To enjoy God. Yeah, to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Glorify God and enjoy Him forever. This really is what Solomon sums up here. Ecclesiastes tells us about enjoying God, enjoying life in Him, and to glorify Him in this way. So we see this aspect, that Our our whole duty is to fear him and obey him, keep his commandments. Notice with the letter B. We see man's responsibility for life under the sun. But notice also there's man's perspective for life under the sun here. Given that we're to fear God and obey him, that means certainly there must be a reason for doing that, right? What's the reason? Why should I fear God? Why should I love him enough to... Keep his commandments and obey him with my life. Why should I do that? It's my life, right? Why should I do that? Verse 14 will give you a good answer for that. Here's what Solomon said. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. What a soul-stirring truth that is you understand that every single one of us are headed for judgment on the basis of our life under the sun. Our life under the sun. You see, what the final judgment makes clear to us, it makes clear to us that everything matters. Everything. Everything matters in light of God. Well, how do we see that? What will God bring into judgment? What does he say? He will bring some deeds and some secret things that are good and evil. He says everything. Every deed and every secret thing, whether it's good or whether it's evil, that encompasses every aspect of our life. From the time we wake up to the time we go to bed, what you thought, what you said, what you did. Things that were known, things that were unknown. Nothing escapes the all-knowing eye of God. See, Paul says that God commands every man everywhere to repent for a great reason. Acts 17.31, because he is fixed today. You know what it means when he's fixed a day. It means he's already ordained it and set it. It's already set. You can't get around it. Not going to, you're not going to bypass the day. You're not going to get a pass on the day. It's fixed. He's fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to us by raising him from the dead. You know why, how we know for sure there's a day of judgment? Because Jesus is risen. If he was dead in the tomb, do what you want, but he ain't. Risen. There will be no secret that will be left a secret. This ties everything together about all of our life. Here's how, here's how little this goes down to Matthew 12, 36 and 37. Jesus said, I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. That makes me convicted a little bit at yelling at the red light. <laughs> about you but this one over here to turn left from my house takes forever forever I'm not the most patient person under the sun especially when I got to get to church but it makes us think about what we're going to say what we're going to think about saying He does this apply even to those who maybe don't know the word of God absolutely listen to this Paul says regarding Gentiles who didn't have the law of God Romans 2 15 through 16 they show that the work of the law is written in their hearts While their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. Every person in the world is accountable for their creator. And as Paul says in Romans 14, 12, each one of us is going to give account of himself to God. What will our account be that we give to God? Now, here's why we must live with a holy reverence. Because of the coming judgment. But it's also important for us as Christians to stay in the context of our own judgment. See, we who are in Christ, understand this, will not be judged on the penalty of sin, but on how you lived for Christ after you'd been saved. You understand that if God was to judge you based on the penalty of sin, every single one of us are going to hell. Not a one of us escapes. You say, well, why doesn't God judge us on the penalty of sin? Because on the cross, what did Jesus pay? That eternal condemnation we deserve. For our sake, He made Him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that we, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. That's what He's made us. Now, understand, this does not excuse us to sin, as if, oh, it's under the blood. No, friend, God still chastises His children. You can lose reward. You can, uh, you you can hinder your Christian life in a great way. Because if we truly know Christ, our goal is not to to try to excuse sin. Our goal is to mortify sin. If you truly know Christ, that's your goal. That's your aim. But understand this, that those who are not in Christ will give account for every sin they have ever committed in their life under the sun. That is a fearful thing. Those sins are beyond measure. God will punish every sin. Whether it be little or small in our eyes, every sin will be punished. And that is why knowing Jesus is imperative. Because whoever has the Son has life, and whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. It all boils down to this with Ecclesiastes. We need to know our Creator. We need to fear Him. We need to live for Him. What a great message the book of Ecclesiastes presents to us. Life has much in it, but understand that life is vanity of vanities without our great God. So we must fear him, we must obey him, and enjoy the life he's given us under the sun to his glory. That's the summary, that's the conclusion.